all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We want to thank VetBiz Central, which is part of the U.S. Small Business Association, VBOC, Vet Business Outreach Centers. VetBiz Central covers Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, and can be reached at vetbizcentral.org. Let's move on to our programs. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, James Carl Nelson, who's an author and historian, and we're going to talk about his new book, The York Patrol. Jim, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thanks very much for having me. No, it's great to have you on. Uh, We have a certain soft spot in our heart for Medal of Honor recipients, and uh, every now and again it's good to reach back because there's so many of these, and this is, uh, we're going to talk about the real story of Elvin York and the unsung, unsung heroes who made him World War I's most famous soldier. Um, this is one of those things that people probably have forgotten over time, but we're going to mention a few things, and they go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And uh, it, it starts with sort of people remembering the movie. and oh, yeah. And, and yeah. The, the, oh, the Sergeant York movie with uh, Cary Grant. Back when? <laughs> when you know, so, yeah, Walter Matthau. Right. These are, these are big you know, Hollywood names that have now uh, passed on, but... Uh, the well, it was actually Gary, it was Gary Cooper, actually. Oh, it was Gary Cooper. Yeah. Um, the, he won an Academy Award for that. These are names that people have sort of forgotten, and a little bit they've along the way they've forgotten who uh, Elvin York was. So let's start with, tell, tell us the background of Elvin York. Well, he was, you know, really, he was the, uh, I hate to say it, but, you know, a backwoods Tennessee hick, really, and his family had been in uh, Fentress County, Tennessee, in northeastern Tennessee, for some generations, and he had basically, if he added it all together, he had about two years of proper schooling. Um, and he was kind of a hellraiser in his early days. Went out and drank and 
got in fights and uh, shot at people. And then he uh, he had to come to Jesus moment and found the Lord and uh, with the aegis of a local pastor who was sort of a fundamentalist church there. And he went on the straight and narrow. And then in uh, 1917, his uh, draft number came up. And so he was shipped to Camp Gordon in uh, Georgia. And he really wrestled with uh, the issue of he might have to kill a person, another man, uh, if he goes in the army and goes to France and fights. Um, And he really really wrestled with it. He wasn't a real complicated guy. Um, But this is one thing. I mean, that's like the first commandment, thou shalt not kill. Um, And so they were really actually pretty nice to him, considering it was the army back in 1917. They let him, uh, they tried to hash it out with him as commanding officers. Uh, trading verses back and forth about why he should pick up a gun and why he shouldn't. They let him go home for 10 days to think about it, and he walked in the mountains. And finally, you know, he, he was kind of painted as a conscientious objector, which wasn't really true, but that's his pastor, uh, Rosier Pike, uh, tried to have him labeled such or, or uh, named such um, in, in some letters that he sent. Um, York always said he wasn't that. He just wanted to know what the fighting was all about. Uh, so he finally got convinced or convinced himself that uh, it would be okay for him to pick up a, a weapon and use it against fellow man for a, great, a greater good, whatever you want to call it. And so he went back to Camp Gordon and then got shipped overseas with the 82nd Division. Well, it's an, it, 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 this early years is sort of interesting because, as you say, he was a backwoods Tennessee, grew up in the hollow hick um but that also meant he had a certain skill set that he developed over time that translated yeah. pretty well to the army didn't it yeah well his father was quite a hunter and he always took uh alvin out hunting whatever birds bear whatever um so yeah he was really adept with the rifle you know sort of a probably a musket style rifle um became a good shot legendarily good shot. I mean, I know they played that up in the movie big time. He shoots the head off a turkey, but they did have like turkey shoots and things like that where you would, you know, win money or win a bird or something if you uh, got the best shot on it. So, yeah, that was a skill set. And also just being uh, roaming the woods, you know, being at home in the woods, uh, hunting, trapping, whatever it was, uh, that certainly came into play in France because they went over some pretty rough ground uh, in that fight. Um, and especially when they went into the Argonne Forest where he performed his famous deed. Well, and one of the things that, again, it's kind of easy to forget about what World War I was really like. Um, you know, those aren't the current movies. That's not currently in the media. Um, but these were boys. Many of them had not been, you know, 100 miles from their hometown and they find themselves moving around the United States, being put on a ship and sent over to England and then over to Europe. This was a this was a real awakening for these guys, wasn't it? For the Americans, you know, my grandfather was a Swedish immigrant who got drafted uh, and uh, went back to France and got shot at Soissons. But so for him, it was like he's going back. He's a little more worldly. Came from Sweden, but for somebody like uh, yeah, like Alvin York. He'd never left Tennessee, and so when he went to Camp Gordon, that's the first time he'd ever really been out of the county. Um, and so, yeah, to go to France and uh, first to England, uh, take the train, 
go to Hoboken, see New York City, go across, you know, and then you go across England. Um, it's not like they sent them anybody right to Paris, but uh, he eventually got to Paris. Um, and and in, in uh, York's case, it really did open his eyes. Um, he saw, you know, big cities and he saw different kinds of people and uh, it, it widened his mind to a large degree so that when he got back to the States, he resolved to improve the uh, the lives of the people in, in this backwoods community. He was eliminated, wanted to build schools, uh, get the kids educated, you know, just because uh, he had seen that in France uh, and in England, you know. And, and, and you know, World War One in particular was a part, you know, as all wars are, a brutal war. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it was classic, the trenches, um, sending, you know, battalions on full frontal charges against machine gun positions. Um, it was sort of like life was very cheap on all sides. Um, and, uh, you know, the United States didn't get in until April of 1917. Um, didn't really get fighting until really, you know, April, May of 1918. Um, but, you know, they lost... 53,000 men uh, killed uh, in action or to wounds. A total of 116,000 men died in six months. If you you multiply that times eight, it would have been a pretty staggering number, probably close to a million uh, casualties. Um, But yeah, it was uh, was a tough war, and Germany was, uh, until the end, a uh, tough foe. And you mentioned it, it was these frontal attacks. This isn't where, you know, you send in the bombers to soften up the hillside. This was a different war, and um, that sort of sets up this push through the Argonne Forest in, in I guess I'll call it, northeast France, uh, what the Western Front, that results in um, Elvin York's you know, day of infamy. Um, he's been in Europe for about uh, what four or five months at that point. They're not really right. all that battle tested. No. Walk no. us through what happens with York's patrol, and and how they come to this um, unique situation. Yeah, in the larger context, uh, the, the, the Argonne offensive uh, pushed off on uh, I think September twenty fifth, um, nineteen eighteen, and they were jumping off, heading north, nine American divisions against the German defenders. And uh, in the sector that uh, York wound up in, it was uh, it started out with the 35th Division, and they made good progress, then got stymied at a, a village called uh, Exermont, just south of the Romaine Hills. The 1st Division took over. They were able to take Hill 240, keep pushing a little bit more, but then they got stymied by artillery uh, from across the Air River to the northwest, that halted their progress. So uh, a plan was devised. Uh, it was a pretty risky plan, too, to send uh, another division below the 1st Division west and uh, above the 28th Division that was moving up the west side of the air. And so they did like this maneuver where they just sent them straight west across the air, uh, started trying to clean out the uh, the, the hills of Cornet and chatel Um And... Uh, they, they made some fairly decent progress. The 1st Battalion of the 328th Regiment and the 327th to their north, uh, but it was bitter fighting. And on the morning of October 8th, um, they decided to send in the 2nd Battalion of the 328th Regiment, and that is Alvin York's uh, battalion, um, and continued to push west. They're trying to reach this uh, railroad track uh, they called the uh, Dachauville uh, Railroad that supplied 
that entire area, the German army in that area. Another complicating factor was further to the west in the 77th Division sector, there was the famous Lost Battalion, who were surrounded by Germans. They had been cut off from the rest of their men, and they were being attacked with uh, flamethrowers and grenades, and uh, they were in terrible straits. So part of the, the uh, move was also intended to alleviate the pressure around the Lost Battalion. So 6 a.m. on October 8th in the morning, the 2nd Battalion of 328th picks up the, the fight west. They run into horrendous machine gun fire coming from their front and from their left. Um, the platoon that uh, uh, York and his mates were in, uh, its leader, Lieutenant Kirby Stewart, was killed during the advance. And finally, Sergeant Harry Parsons take, takes over, and he gathers Bernard Early, who's the sergeant of this uh, squad, what do you want to call it, and he instructs them to go to the left over a hill and try to reduce the machine guns on the left that are causing so much damage. Um, and so there were 17 men, and York was one of them. He was a, a squad leader, uh, one of uh, four. And they they went up this hill, back down around. They didn't even really know where they were. Eventually, they realized they were behind the German lines, um, and they encountered a couple of German medics at a stream. Uh, they fired at them. The medics took off running and basically led them right to this group of uh, German soldiers who were lolling about eating breakfast uh, in preparation for going into battle. This is, yeah, almost, yeah. this is almost accidental, isn't it? it? It is they get behind enemy lines and stumble on this encampment of guys who, mm-hmm. who weren't prepared to fight. They, as you say, they were, it was breakfast yeah. time. It was, it was mutual surprise, <laughs> I would say. You know, uh, the Americans were surprised, the Germans were surprised. Um, the Germans actually thought they were British soldiers. You know, I don't think the Germans really, even at that point, realized that the Americans were coming in full force at them. Um, but yeah, so they had laid their weapons aside. Um, the, the, to some of the Americans in the patrol start firing. Um, the Germans have no idea how big a force this is. They could, for all they know, it's hundreds of people. Uh, Bernard Early, uh, instructs, uh, them to surrender. The German commander does. He speaks English because he spent some time in the States. And so the, he inst- tells the men in the, in the patrol to go start taking the weapons from the Germans and lining them up to get them out of there. And unknown, on a ridge just above them in the woods, the men, uh, the Germans who had been firing out of open plain on Hill 223 at the advancing Americans, turned the guns around and fired down, uh, hitting some of the Germans, but killing instantly six members of the patrol um it was kind of a i mean they you know you could say they should have known better they should have reconnoitered better but i think everything happened really quickly um three men were also wounded not early otis merithew and uh, um, muzzy um and uh so what do the men do the germans hit the ground the men are still there guarding them basically everybody hits the ground and tries to stay out out of sight I mean, they're just eating dirt, you know. Um, and York wound up in a favorable position, sort of in the center and a little forward, and it was protected by some brush and trees and also a gaggle of German soldiers that uh, he had been guarding. So he used them as cover, and he would say that whenever he saw a German machine gunner or whatever pop up his head up, he just touched him off with his with his rifle first. Um 
it said he killed 20, 25. I know some of the other men were also firing uh, uh, Percy Beards. We had this, uh, this French light machine gun called a Show Show, uh, which is usually handled by three men. He also said he fired his pistol. Um, it's, we still don't know exactly how many, but the, the, the Newman of the fight, the end of the fight, is when uh, this lieutenant, Fritz Endress, gathers six of his men and comes streaming down the hill uh, in a in a bayonet charge, basically, pretty much right for York's position. And he, he takes out his pistol, and he begins firing, and he starts with the guys at the back so that they, the, uh, they, they fired the guys in the front. They know to hit the ground because they could see the guys fall. Starts shooting from left to right at the guys coming down the hill, and he, uh, his last shot mortally wounds Fritz Endress, shot in the stomach. And at that point, the... Uh, the German commander, who, who meanwhile had his own pistol and was trying to shoot York <laughs> and missed all six shots, um, finally says, you know, it comes up to York, and says, you know, if you stop shooting, I'll surrender. And uh, York says, okay. And uh, he says, uh, what, what are you guys, English? He says, no, we're American. He goes, oh, my God, you know. Um, and so, you know, his name was Balmer, and uh, Kurt, it was Kurt Balmer. And anyway... He didn't know many, how many. He didn't know how many Americans were there, um, so he surrendered about ninety of his men. And once again, they start, you know, taking weapons, lining them up, and then they start marching them out. And and this is this is the, you know, this all happens in the matter of uh, you know what fifteen minutes or something. It's, Ten fifteen, yeah, it's yeah, pretty it's, quick. it's yeah. really a quick uh, uh, event, which uh, many firefights are. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly the, at that point in time, and because Lieutenant Vollmer surrenders, not knowing how big a group of Americans are surrounding him, um, you know, ninety, a hundred people get uh, captured, and and York is now in charge of the platoon, um, and and has to march these guys back behind the back to the American side, and and turn these guys all all in. And one of the things, you know, the, the book um, is really well written and easy to read, The York Patrol, the real story of Alvin York and the unsung heroes who made him World War I's most famous soldier by James Carl Nelson. And the maps are good to help you kind of understand what's going on. But from a historian's standpoint, the next part is what's fascinating, I think, probably to the reader and maybe to you, about how this kind of gets a life of it, his, its own. He becomes put up for a Distinguished Service Cross, okay, but then there's the media involvement, which back in the day people was uh, newspapers and magazines, not the internet. Talk us through how this kind of catches on and becomes uh, this promotion of America's uh, hero of World War One. Well, you know, word got around within army circles of uh, what had happened um, when they marched these Germans back out on the plane to the 328th uh, headquarters. And slowly word got around more and more when uh, York and the others brought this big group of Germans and other Germans that had been captured by the rest of uh, Company G and Company E were also added to the total. So it came to about 132 Germans. Marched them back to the... uh, um, headquarters of the uh, 164th Brigade and its commander, 
says, uh, York, I hear you captured the whole German army. And York says, no, I only got 132. Anyway, York gets around. And there was a, the biggest, uh, the biggest impetus for, for his becoming a legend was a writer named George Patello, who had been uh, in France for about a year and a half and had written different stories about the first division and then at the, about Bellow Wood. Uh, he heads to France after the war was over. One more time, he had gone to the U.S. briefly for a visit. And he gets wind of this story, and he basically uh, gets, you know, who doesn't want you know somebody to be a hero in their, um, under their command? By now, York already had been recommended for a Medal of Honor uh, once they figured out the, the magnitude of, of his feat. Um, and so he interviews York and uh, other members of the patrol and writes the story for the Saturday Evening Post called The Second Elder Gives Battle referring back to his uh, Christian um, beliefs, his, his membership of the church. And that was a big splash. And that ran on April 26, 1919, before York even got back to the U.S. That got picked up by other newspapers. He became uh, not just a national celebrity, but an international celebrity. I mean, he was one of the most famous people in the world at that point. And for really... Much of the rest of his life, he lived to be, I think, uh, was he about 76 when he died in 1964. Uh, it started waned, slowly waned a little bit more, but he's always in the news. I mean, during World War II, somebody ghostwrited a newspaper column for him. And then, of course, the movie came along in 1941. Um, and there's a lot of uh, patriotic uh, stuff going on about the, the brewing World War II. Um, but, uh, yeah, it really gave itself a, a life of his own. And he... York, though, you know, he was deluged with movie offers, all books offers, all sorts of things. And for 10 years, he didn't do anything. Um, he said he's, the uniform's not for sale. Um, but he, he wanted, he had this big idea to build schools in Fentress County. He was trying to raise money for that. He, was, he also, the uh, local Rotary Club had given him a farm and paid for only half of it. So he was left with this mortgage that uh, he was basically going to be foreclosed upon. And he finally realized uh, that he was terrible with money, by the way. Um, and uh, finally realized maybe he should, you know, try to capitalize on his on his fame, if nothing else, for uh, to help his projects, these schools and things like that. Well, I but think was, I think that's where, uh, uh, as we come up on time limits here, I want to point out a couple of things that I got out of reading the book, and and uh, I recommend it to everybody. You you point out that he becomes the hero. And, and I'm quoting uh, from the book that says, York happened to ride into a fuller fame than most of his brother Medal of Honor men because an American magazine writer gave the world the story of his deed at the moment when the public was seeking just such a war idol. And then I want to spring forward to 1940s or 41, whatever it is, when the movie comes out and, and Sergeant York, the movie comes out Again, a whole new media buzz, if you will, because America was looking for a new war hero or, you know, refanning the flames as they were looking at going into World War II. Did you intend to draw that comparison or was am I just overreading it? No, not at all. In fact, I mean, when the movie came out, I think it was in uh, over the summer of 41, before Pearl Harbor, um, there are young men who go see that movie and go down to the enlistment office and join in. <laughs> you know, so it was, a, and that was part of the intent uh, of the movie. That's why you know, there's a lot of newspapers saying this is really great. We need some patriotism right now. And you're right. One of the things was 
you know, I, I note in the beginning of the book that uh, there were 13 different American soldiers performed actions on October 8, 1918, and were awarded the Medal of Honor. Why York? You know, and I think the answer is his deed was was indeed special, um, but because of his backstory, because George Pacello came uh, along and wrote him up. Um, I mentioned in there, you know, in the book that there's a Sergeant Harry Adams with the 89th Division. He shot through a door and followed some Germans through, and he walked out with 300 men, and he, with an, and he had an unloaded weapon, and 300 Germans surrendered to him. So it wasn't just sheer numbers. It was everything combined, the timing, the need for a hero, maybe even the need for someone to say what this war was really all about, you know what I mean? Um, because it really didn't resolve anything. The, the other thing that you really uh, point out in the book, and I think it's an important lesson for everybody, is just, just because you have that one heroic day and you get... Uh, you know, put up on the pedestal for it. Yeah, he was terrible with money. He he had not only bad luck but bad decisions on almost everything after the war, because he wasn't he wasn't an educated man, and he was put in this spot of having to deal with offers and whatnot and book deals and yeah, you know, a, and, 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 it was more than he could handle, and and yet we you know we continue to hold those heroes up and sometimes knock them down when they don't meet our expectations. Yeah, and I mean he didn't pay he didn't pay the taxes he owed from the receipts from the movie, which was a significant amount of money. Um, you know, I mean he he owed the IRS into the fifties until finally they settled like he he's worth twenty five thousand dollars at that point or something, and he gave it all to the government, and they said okay, we're we're even now. You know, and when he died. He was living off of $300 stipend from a wealthy businessman. I mean, it was like he didn't make a lot of money off of, off of his his, uh, his deed. Um, and, I, and you know, if you get it in my book, I think it's almost kind of like, be careful what you wish for. Uh, and I don't think he wished for this anyway. It was no. kind of what was yeah. thrust on him. He had no idea, leaving the, uh, the forest that day, what was going to become of his life? He couldn't have. You and, know what and, I mean? and you and, and the whole point of the York Patrol is to give some, uh, put out some information about all the other men uh, who, yeah, who you know, survived or died. He couldn't have done it without. I mean, who's, if, if, if they hadn't been there uh, to help him kill these Germans and also to guard uh, the prisoners that, that they were, you know, while they were under fire, that could have just rushed them if they uh, had had wanted to, could have just annihilated the whole patrol. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to, my first book was Remain in the Company D about my grandfather's unit. I just wanted to say who these guys were. You know, there was like half a dozen immigrants from Poland, Russia, Ireland, um, a real typical kind of doughboy kind of squad. Um, I want to mention one more thing, too. People don't really get that this action, this capture of, of this, these Germans here on the right flank of the German line, actually was a huge turning point in the Argonne fight, and then in the war, which ended a month later. They, they, they allowed their comrades to keep pushing forward west to the railway line. They cut that off. This is on October 8th. On October 9th, the Germans started pulling out from the Argonne because um, they, they moved their right flank back. Uh, so it was really, there's, it's more important than just the capture of these 90-whatever Germans. It had a big impact on the war itself. Let me finish by reading um, sort of a last few sentences that really struck me in the book. Because it is about not just York, it's about the other men too. Quote, both the quick and the dead should be remembered and honored when talk turns to acting Corporal Elvin C. York. Each did their duty. 
and plowed into the deep woods on the left flank of their regiment's advance into the Argonne Forest, some paying the ultimate price. Remember their names and their sacrifice. But remember Elvin York as well, the man who performed his duty with steely determination and skill and paid for it one way or another for the rest of his life. Yeah, I guess that's my point, you know. I uh, I really kind of believe that he might have had a happier life if he had just gone back to Tennessee unknown, you know, and just lived in anonymity like, you know, so many doughboys did, so many returning soldiers of all wars did. My grandfather did. He was a painting contractor in Chicago. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's a question that occurred to me when I was doing the book. Well, I want to thank you for your work. It's a, it's a great read. It, it really shines a light on a particular event and a particular Medal of Honor recipient. And we're glad to bring uh, James Carl Nelson, author and historian, uh, who wrote The York Patrol, to our veteran radio listeners. Jim, thanks for taking some time with us today. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fawson. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Veterans Radio needs you. If you like our shows that are informative, surprising stories, and relevant information on what's happening at the VA and the military, we'd like your support. Individual support of $5 to $50 a month or corporate sponsorship of 1000 to $10,000 would be welcomed. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the Sponsorship or Support tab, pay online, and keep Veterans Radio on the air.